Well, I, I start with the presumption that all of us, actually all humans, have been hurt or wounded by others to some degree many times in the courses of our lives. Some of it could be minor. I was chosen last for the team at recess. That's a hurt. I didn't get the raise I deserved. She turned me down for him. Those are all types of hurts. And then there's some much deeper, but whatever the wound is, when we take it in, it can fester. And when we're hurt deeply, often as a small child, we have to figure out some explanation that we can live with. Naturally, we take it personally. At least I always do. We form some identification around it. And perhaps to ease the pain, we create stories around our disappointments and our resentments. And the stories become a reality for us. They kind of get a life of their own. And it becomes part of who we are, how we view the world. My habitual reaction, if I don't get my way, is I pout like a three-year-old little boy. And I do it without even being aware of it. And I don't even know that I'm pouting because I don't get my way. But you see, one time, as a four-year-old child, I pouted, and it worked. <laughs> and you know, you just, and we just keep coming back to that thing that worked, and keep trying again, and we internalize it. Well, for me, the early details are pretty foggy, but I can picture with great clarity the person who I blame, who I hold responsible for hurting me and stunning my growth. And I can go back and recall many early encounters with her when I think that she treated me badly. And I can also see how these feelings grew and, re and became reinforced and became stronger and stronger and more real. And they became very destructive to my well-being. For me, it was my mom. As a little boy, she was all-powerful to me. And I thought it was my job to make her proud of me. And she told me things I could do that would make her proud. And I really tried most of the time. And I needed her to take care of me. 
but I was never secure. The slightest slip, and I would be called to task. So it seemed to me. That's my viewpoint. <laughs> After I was in first grade, we have breakfast. And after breakfast, I would go in the bathroom and vomit every morning before going to school. A six-year-old under stress. Fast forwarding some 20-some years ago, I don't remember, maybe 25 years ago, my mother was up here visiting me and my family, and she stayed for quite a period of time. And this incident is very clear in my mind. We were driving on Lindale Avenue at 66th Street South and stopped for a red light. And we had this old encounter that I'd seen replayed so many times between her and my dad. She offered to take my family out for supper, and she wanted me to pick a place. And I knew better. I knew that I shouldn't pick a place. I said, no, you, you pick a place, Mom. And we went back and forth. And finally, I gave in. And I said, well, how about, um, I think it was East Lake Harriet Pizza. There was a little pizza shop. Oh, no, she said, that's way too expensive. You know, and that's how it always was between her and my dad. And I just blew up. I mean, I just blew to pieces. And I just sat there, and I started yelling at her. And she was sitting right there. And I recounted all those times with my dad and how she always did this. And, you know, I just spewed all. You would have thought I was the most awful man on earth, spewing all this stuff out at her. I, and there, I this went on through three red lights, and I was at that intersection, and people were blowing their horns, you know, and I didn't give a big darn about them. I had to unload all this stuff. And she just kind of, you know, she didn't take any of it in, at least apparently. But somehow or other, that released all this toxin that was in me. And... Uh, you know, it, it wasn't planned. <laughs> it wasn't, um, it was just a reaction to a lot of years of suffering because I blamed her so, for so many things that had gone wrong in my life. My mom died in 1989 after a full lifespan. But we had never reconciled. I hadn't forgiven her. We never told each other that we loved each other. A few years later, I was assigned a task of making a list of all the people I resented. It was kind of a hard thing to do. I kept putting it off and putting it off. Finally, I went out to a retreat center out in the country, and I went in a little room with a 
yellow tablet, and I just started writing down the list. And I wrote for 45 minutes. And I remember I called home, called my wife, and said, I, I, I did it. And I have a terrible headache, and I never get headaches. You know, it was just very stressful to do this. And number one on the list of the people I resented was my mom. Well, the next thing I had to do was to go tell somebody about these resentments I had. And the guy I chose was a psychologist who helped me with my depression, had been helping me with my depression. And I got to the part when I talked about how I had harmed my children. We have six lovely children. And in raising them, I was very hard on them. I was very demanding. You know, and it's okay to be demanding and be hard, but it was never good enough, you see. And as I was explaining this and how I felt that that stunted their growth, I started crying. I couldn't help myself. I just started crying about what I had done to these kids. They, you know, and. And he, the guy who listened to me, was perceptive enough. And he says, who are you crying for? And I was like, I'm crying for these little children. They deserve better. They didn't, they didn't deserve what I gave them. They deserved more love and encouragement. And then, then I thought some more about the question, you know, I'm not actively thinking about it, but it would come back to me in a day or two. And then I, I, well, I was crying for little Craig. You know, that's exactly how I was raised. <laughs> and I deserved better, I thought. And you see, that's what I always thought. That's what I blamed her for not being good enough. And I was blaming myself for not being good enough. And then later, the thought occurred to me, I'm crying for myself as a father. My parents died without our really reconciling and expressing our love toward one another. And this is about what's going to happen to me. That's a possibility. Well, that led me to the thought that I never had before. I knew how I had been raised. I knew how I raised my children. But I didn't know how my mother was raised. She never talked about her own. And I started meditating on that. And I have on my altar a picture my brother sent me. She's about nine years old with her sister, Peg, a younger sister. And I think she's wearing homemade clothes and her hair is in her braid. They, the family was Irish. They were very poor. And she always, whenever she said the term shanty Irish, there was this edge in her voice. By golly, she wasn't going to be that, that she wasn't. And... <clears throat> Her mom was this, 
was second wife of her, of her father. Their, their first wife died. And so she had these half-sisters. Two of them were severely retarded. And I remember visiting them in the mental institution in Iowa. And I saw my mom as this nine-year-old girl going to school and being poor and how the other kids would have teased. Ruth and Jenny. And how hard that must have been. And she never said any of this, you see. about my mom not being good enough just dissolved like me she did the best she could and some while later I guess this is the forgiveness part you know, I was walking in my house one weekend morning. Didn't have a thought in my mind. And all of a sudden I looked up and I said, Oh, Mom, I could help you. I could help you now. You know? I could help you now. I could help heal you. You know, I'm there the spiritual growth. I know. I understand. Well, that's my story. So I ask you to take a moment. Many of you carry a wound or a pain in you. It's troubling. get through that story without crying a little bit. <laughs> anyway, that's okay. I'm a man. I can cry. Okay, I wanted to do this kind of guided meditation on forgiveness. There's um, one, two, three. Looks like there's four parts to it, more or less. Kind of runs together. Uh, well, I'll just talk a little bit, and it's going to be kind of long, and so if you need to move, move. I guess the most important announcement I can make, if you're new here, 
is the bathroom is down the stairs through that door around the corner to your right. And there will be a, a break after the, it'll be about 45 minute meditation period. And we'll pause and I'll suggest some things to reflect on and we'll just pause and then move on and where there's a transition of from one point to another there'll just be a soft bell to kind of let you know something different's coming so the first couple minutes attention to the breath, just awareness of how it is for us right now. Can you hear me okay in the back? A little louder? Okay. And signal if I, if I fall. Yeah, I forget. Please direct the attention of your mind away from the breath to the quality of your heart as it is right here, right now. Focus your intention on your heart.
Right now, do you notice, is your heart under any stress? Is it constricted? Does the thought of working with forgiveness give rise to anxiety around the heart? Consider the first noble truth of the Buddha, the truth of Dukkha. Dukkha is often translated as suffering. Suffering. It can be a very coarse suffering, or it can be a very subtle suffering too one that often goes unnoticed and it can oftentimes only be picked up by noticing the quality of the heart the subtle dukkha is a kind of undertone of discontentment. Often we are so used to it we don't notice it. We say, oh everything is fine. with a resigned tone in our voice. We really don't want to go to how it really is for us.
for a few moments consider how is everything what does your heart tell you Simply direct your attention, your mindfulness, to the heart. It is very natural, entirely human, to have aversion to pain, to turn away from pain, try to think happy thoughts. But pain is still there. A numbness. Numbness, not feeling anything, is, is simply another form of pain not being dealt with. What must we do to proceed? What is required is some opening to our pain. Actually, some intimacy. Even though we don't want to go there. That's required. We are human. Of course we've been wounded. And of course we want to fix it. But our wanting to fix it is not how it works. Instead, what we must do is first come to 
honestly acknowledge to ourselves that we are wounded beings. And from that ground, healing becomes possible. here at this very moment in your heart do you want anything to be different can you just stay a little while longer but with the pain as it is Having developed some intimacy with our woundedness, we can now proceed to look more closely at our wounds. manifest as negative reactivity when certain conditions arise. Do we have some habitual way of reacting? when we are provoked or threatened. One tendency, the tendency I have is to lash out, retaliate. 
other habitual ways of reacting are shutting down, withdrawing. negative energy. Maybe we're not aware of our specific reactions, but notice a more general malaise within us from time to time. A sadness, a depression. Take a few minutes and reflect upon your patterns of unhappiness. As we look more closely, we begin to see a connection between our woundedness and a sense of loss. Our dissatisfaction arises from a sense of loss. The loss of not getting what we wanted, what we needed, what we deserved. Or the loss of getting what we didn't want, didn't need, didn't deserve. Take a few minutes and name a significant loss you have suffered. Could be a loss of something you had or a loss of something you didn't get. But as best you can, open your heart to the feeling of loss. You may not want to do this may not want to open your heart to that, but try as best you can.
we may not have a choice about what we have lost, but we do have the choice of how we respond to loss and how we respond to loss is of primary importance. One response is to deny that we've had a loss. We call that aversion. A different response is to insist that someone, something, some success compensate us for our loss. Another response is to resign ourselves with bitterness to the unfairness of life. Any of these responses, denial, insisting on being compensated, are becoming bitter, causes the wound to fester and grow. These unhealthy responses to our losses keep us imprisoned to depression, anxiety, and a neurotic quest for victory to overcome our loss. Also free to choose healthy responses to loss. To acknowledge our loss for what it is, a painful loss of something important to us. Once we acknowledge the loss and the pain that we have from the loss, we can grieve. We can grieve our loss. We can open to the painful feeling in our heart of having lost what we lost. We can surrender emotionally to our loss. 
we begin to let go, to stand over the grave of our loss and weep, and we can express our grief in the fellowship of trusted friends who care for us. We simply mourn our loss as a loss. Grieving is a process. It takes time, courage, persistence. But I don't think there's an alternative. John Semedo and the wonderful Vipassana teacher in the UK says that grieving is a skillful means for dealing with loss. Through grieving we become intimate with the feeling of loss. We directly experience the pain as best we can and we no longer hide from the pain. That's where the healing begins. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see, through the process of mourning, we become comforted. We may not have a choice about what we have lost, but we do have a choice of how we respond. To loss. I think we've done some pretty hard work and let's just take a break for a minute or two before we continue in this meditation. Please remain silent and keep your attention where it was.
Just keep paying attention to what's going on in you. One thing that happens through the process of grieving is we begin, or it, it makes it possible, perhaps later on, to let go of the intense personal identification with our loss. And perhaps you may recall the story, the time of the Buddha. The, the woman who lost her infant child. And she was bereft. And she came to the Buddha for help. You recall the story? As I recall, the Buddha said, Yes, I can help you. I can make you something, but you need to take this cup and go into the village. And bring me a cup of flour from a household in which there has been no loss. And she thanked him. And she took the cup. And she went in the village to look for a cup of flour. in a household in which there had been no loss. She was gone a long time, and as you probably know, when she returned, she thanked the Buddha, because he had helped her. Because she saw there was no household that had not suffered loss. And that's how it is. Coming back to forgiveness, most of us have a significant story around, or have a story around a significant loss. There's someone or some institution or some principle that we blame. You've heard my story. 
about my mom, I blanked. Is there someone or something you blame for a painful loss? Now here's the catch. It's okay to feel whatever you feel in that regard. You don't have to think you're an enlightened being who doesn't feel these things. That'll set you back. You just feel what you feel. Don't try to be something different. If you have negative feelings towards someone or something, just open to those feelings now just as they are. person or the thing, the institution that you're not able to forgive. But I ask you to consider a new question. That was then. But whose energy is harming you now? Whose energy is harming you now? Forget the story of how you were originally wounded. Even though we are very comfortable with that story and it seems so real, let it go. Come to the pain, the present pain you're feeling right now. Whose energy is causing that pain? I know from my own experience that that question is very troubling at many levels. But the question must be met head on as honestly as we can to help us become free.
why is it so hard to forgive? Why is it so hard to let go of grudges? Is it because we don't want to let off the hook someone for what they've done? Do we think they deserve punishment? Punishment? Reflect in your heart if there's some truth in that for you. If so, if so, consider the possibility that the idea that they should be punished, that you are the one to do that, is based on self-centered thinking that we are ju to judge and punish others. That thinking does give a sense of control, of security. And it's not bad. We're not bad for thinking those thoughts. We're human. And we misunderstand. Our error is simply in our misperception that it is our role to judge others. And consider further by holding on to this idea. Who, who is being punished by the ill will that you hold on to. You are. You are being punished by holding on to ill will. A second reason it's hard to forgive is we become comfortable with our story. We may be miserable and depressed, but we're used to it. Besides, our story is a defense against having to look too closely at ourselves. We say that's just the way I am. We absolve ourselves from our responsibility for living our life and so condemn ourselves to this prison of ill will. As long as we're stuck, there's no healing. Is there any truth to this for you? If you see even a tiny speck of truth, 
and you open to that, your heart will show you what to do. got one more part to go through and this is the best part so you've gone through what I think is the real challenging part enter directly into a practice of forgiveness to soothe our reluctance to forgive we need to distinguish forgiving from pardoning as I said perhaps we don't want to let the person off the hook as if we had the power to do so. Consider the law of karma rather than our self-centered our self-centered practice of judging and condemning. Karma means there are consequences for action. The wrong that the person did you has consequences not just to you the law of karma operates without our help we don't need to keep anyone on the hook that is not our job Forgiving is different than pardoning. Forgiving is renouncing anger and resentment against someone or something. That's all. Renouncing anger, resentment, letting go of our own ill will.
please go back to your heart once more. Are you willing to consider letting go of your ill will to renounce your resentment against someone or something? If there is reluctance to forgive, that's fine. There's no problem. It's just an indication that more work is required on grieving. In time, your understanding will change. By, by forgiving others, renouncing our ill will, we free ourselves from our own judgment, our own condemnation, and our own ill will. And with continued practice, we will forgive ourselves. We can be freed of what we once feared facing. With practice, we can trust our wisdom, the wisdom through our own experience, the wisdom that helps us see clearly. We see life as it is. By that, I don't mean an unhappy resignation. That's how it is, and it's unfair, a disappointed feeling. But rather, a contented feeling. This life is enough. It's better than I could have imagined. We can know peace our hearts. We can realize the third noble truth and the cessation of dukkha. We can become free of the suffering that we have created for ourselves.
Let's take a ten-minute break. Please maintain silence during the break. Try to keep the focus of your attention on your heart. And then come back here and we'll do something else. Maybe it'll be a little more fun. We, I thought we could have a few minutes of discussion. It's a big group. and just share with everybody. And then after doing that for a few minutes, we'll count off and go uh, like in groups of three to have more intimate discussions. So, um, so We'll spend about five minutes or so just to anybody who wants to talk about some reaction, a problem, um, difficulty, an insight, anything that uh, you experience during this first part of the program. And when you speak, if you would, please say your name. Help some of us with short-term memory problems to keep track. My name is Robert. Robert. Thank you very much. You assisted me greatly. You gave me the direction I needed in my mind to know what it is I need to do. I'm sorry, honey. When I'm feeling offended or attacked or in any way put upon, you give me the direction. Through your mother's story of your mother and your research into her background, it opened my mind to what it is that I was missing. What I was missing was to practice the, the experience of giving compassion and love to someone in the face of being, the perception of, of being attacked or hurt by them. Thank you, Robert. It's very gratifying to hear. I'm happy for you.
times it was hard to make the shift between perception Thank you, Scott. You're very insightful. One last, one last uh, person here. Time for one more. Thank you, Adelaide. And that's oftentimes where it's at. Condemnation of herself. Well, uh, I really like the small group discussion format because you, the rules uh, be, you know, one person will speak. There will be about five minutes, about 15 minutes, so five minutes apiece, kind of share the time. And when you're not speaking, you listen. You listen compassionately and intently to the person who is speaking. And you don't give them advice. You, know. you just listen. And then when they're done, and the next person takes their turn. And um, I thought some questions maybe to to bring up, you know, whichever one, you know, whatever is really predominant with you is what you should talk about. But I'll suggest some questions to that might help. And one is, um, you know, what did you discover? We already heard from three people who discovered something. So that might be a good topic. Can you design a plan of practice for yourself for the next few days? Or just general reactions, maybe. There are things you heard that you didn't like. And you put those out there, too. Don't hold them in.
So I think there's about 30 people. Uh, so we'll count off by 10 and remember your number, and then we'll figure out where we go. So we'll go around the room. We go one, two, three, four, you know, and remember your number. So you start one. One, two, three, four, Did everybody get a number? Okay, well, I I counted wrong. There must be 33. Um, so some groups will have four. But we'll just go around the room. Uh, ones can congregate here. Two kind of where Adley is. Three on the other side of the pillar. Four back there where Jay is. And then five. Or Jay can you move up a little bit. Five back against that wall. And then come around. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten back here. And as I say, uh, about five minutes apiece, except for the people that are, have groups of four, you'll have to cut back your time a little bit. Oh, yeah, okay. The, the, yeah, the, the extra ones, if, uh, if where there's four, since there's three extra ones, if one person in each group would leave, and then you can sit right in the middle of the room. You'll be a group of 11. Good idea. And then after about um, after about 15 minutes or so, the bell will sound and then come back to your original spots. Maybe one one person from group one can be in the eleventh group in the center, and the same way a person from group two can be in the group eleven in the center. If there's four in group three, you can. If you can find a bigger spot for the three of you. No, you're going to figure that out yourself.
between forgiveness and trust. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you would make a person has to earn trust. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there could be forgiveness is just letting go of the ill will that you. small group discussion seems to work pretty well. I got some good news. There's another segment later on where we can go back to that so you can spend a little more time and we might as well go back in the same groups. Uh, one question was brought up to me was, uh, I don't have any special knowledge, I just reacted, but the question is, and where there's a situation of abuse and, and you know, in forgiving, 
uh, is it forgiving if you don't want to go back to those circumstances? And my understanding is there's a big difference between forgiveness and trust. You know, uh, uh, a person once they violate your trust, you don't have to trust them. Again, they have to earn the trust. That's my, that's my understanding. There might be a lot better answers than that. But forgiveness is letting go of the ill will you hold. It doesn't have anything to do with trust or putting yourself in a position to be uh, hurt further by that person. Does that make any sense? Okay, well, now I'd like to continue on. This portion I kind of is misrepresented on my sheet as the talk part of the day, and it's not really. I'm going to read a couple of things that are helpful to me, and they're disparate. They don't really hang together. The first one is uh, writing... Of all people, a psychotherapist, you know, what do I know about that? But he's a Buddhist practitioner, and his name is Mark Epstein. And the book that, or the passage I want to read from is a book called Thoughts Without a Thinker. And if, and this is something I have on my computer, and if, if you want to study this more, um, you can send me an email and I can I can respond. And this passage has to do with what I alluded to in the meditation about wisdom. It's about understanding self. And I think he, he, he makes this very clear, at least from a conceptual point of view. That doesn't mean you can actually work with it just because you understand the concepts, but it, it, it might be of help. And here's what he's written. The question of self is addressed head-on in Buddhism and critical, analytical, or insight meditation. Defined explicitly by the types of questions such as, Who am I? Who am I? What is the true nature of self? My favorite. What is your face before your parents were born? And that goes back, I think, to about 7th or 8th century China. This form of meditation requires preliminary cultivation of both concentration and mindfulness as, as foundations that permit successful self-inquiry. As a psychiatrist, see they like to quote each other, as a psychiatrist Harry Sullivan put it in 1938, that's a long time ago. I was one year old in 1938. The belief in a unique personal individuality is the very mother of illusions. 
the very mother of illusions, the belief in a unique personal individuality. Jacques Lacan stated that the manner in which an infant assumes an image of herself from the mirror, allowing that image to come to symbolize the mental permanence of the, quote, I, unquote. The image becomes established as an ideal that is inevitably compared with the actual experience, but is, it is an illusory image that is unconsciously mistaken for something real. Having, having seen ourselves in the mirror, we think that is who we have to be. When the self is investigated on the path of insight, experiences of delight always give way to terror. It's pretty scary. When the powers of concentration and mindfulness are directed onto the actual experience of, quote, I, a peculiar thing starts to happen. What once seems stable becomes unstable the most basic self-feelings become the primary focus at this stage of practice. And the closer one looks at them, the more absurd, absurd they start to seem. These self-feelings are suddenly revealed as nothing but images. The, the reflection that had been assumed as independent existence in the psyche is seen for what it always was a metaphor or mirage the reflection that had been assumed as independent existence in the psyche the Craig the self, the me, is seen for what it always was, a metaphor or a mirage, is seen through this meditation practice. This is a tricky point, and this is an important point too. There is no attainment of a higher self in Buddhist theory. Instead, only an exposure of what had always been true but unacknowledged. That self is fiction. So I overheard comments of, and I think there was, I guess, no, they weren't. What I overheard, some were spoken about, you know, judging ourselves, forgiving ourselves. We create this fiction of what we think we're supposed to be. And then we're supposed to be something higher. This is a tricky point. There is no attainment of a higher self in Buddhist theory. Instead, only an exposure would have had always been true, but unacknowledged that self is a fiction. Then I had this highlighted. This must be important. According to Buddhist psychology, this understanding is liberating in specific, identifiable ways. Oh, yeah. The difficult emotions 
such as anger, fear, selfish desire, are all predicated on this misperception of self. The difficult emotions are predicated on this misperception of self. When the represent, when the representant, I can't say it, representant, I can't say it, representative nature of self is fully appreciated. When this more true nature of self is fully appreciated, these emotions lose their power. Anger loses its power. Fear loses its power. Selfish desire loses their power. In stripping away people's cravings to have to be something, the insight practices allows meditators to function in the everyday world unencumbered by the need to project the false sense of I. Practitioners gain a liberating sense of understanding about just how distorted their perceptions have been. I know this is true. Self is a metaphor for a process that we do not understand. To reach this point requires not the obliteration of ego, but the development of mental faculty, faculties beyond those that are conventionally accepted as adequate for normal functioning. By working directly with the metaphorical experience of self, meditation offers a complementary method of ego development. Well, that's what I've got written down. And this is pretty powerful. It packs a big wallop, and there's a lot there. And it needs to be chewed and digested. And we're not going to do that today. But um, you might want to, if it means something to you, you might want to take it with you or get a copy of this. Well, this week I, I thought I should say something about what the Buddha said about forgiveness. And I'm not a very good scholar, I have to admit. And I, so I took my uh, middle-length discourses and I looked in the index of subjects in the back for forgiveness. And I didn't find anything there. And then I looked for ill will. And at the back of that, there was some passages on abandoning of ill will. And the one I chose to read today is the Buddha's advice to his own son, Rahula. And I'm going to read four verses, four passages. And the first one is the only one that has anything to do with ill will, but these other three kind of fall together. And they just happen. They're the four divine abodes, the Brahma and the Haras. 
So this is in uh, Middle Link Discourses, number 16, 62, verses 18 to 21, the greater discourse to Rahula. Rahula, develop meditation on loving kindness. For when you develop meditation on loving when you develop loving meditation on loving kindness, any ill will will be abandoned. Very simple, very concise, right to the point of what we're dealing with today. Simple concise develop meditation on loving kindness that might take a while that might take a long while for us at common ground on the first Friday of every month the practice is devoted to metta to loving kindness and I've heard Mark say many times that he has that he must work with he must work with loving kindness every day as part of his meditation practice I think it takes a while to develop meditation on loving kindness for when you develop meditation on loving kindness any ill will will be abandoned. You see, we don't do something to get rid of our ill will, to get rid of anger. We do things that are right, develop loving kindness. And the fruit of that is that of its own accord, the ill will begins to lessen. That's how it works. And just to read the other three. <laughs> Rahula developed meditation on compassion. You know, this list is take years to do. Rahula developed meditation on compassion. For when you develop meditation on compassion, any cruelty will be abandoned. You know, and, and I mentioned my reaction to being hurt was one of retaliation. And, and that's how it was in our family. My brother calls it massive retaliation. And, and that's how we are. I remember being angry the first time I saw a bumper sticker that says, anger is not a family value. And I thought, well, who are you to, you know? It certainly is. And, uh, and, but develop meditation on compassion. For when you do develop meditation on compassion, any cruelty will be abandoned. Rahula, develop meditation on appreciative joy. On appreciative joy, sympathetic joy. When somebody else has something happy, develop a meditation to be happy with them. 
where when you develop meditation on appreciative joy, any discontent will be abandoned. Just think of that. Discontent will be abandoned. It'll just go away. Rahula, develop meditation on equanimity. For when you develop meditation on equanimity, any aversion will be abandoned. You won't have to pull away. You won't have to turn your head. You will be calm. Well, that's quite an order. So let's just stick with the first one. Develop meditation on loving kindness. For when you develop meditation on loving kindness, any ill will will be abandoned. Forgiveness will just naturally occur. It's kind of like, oh, Mom, I can help you. Help you, Mom. Very, very happy. Excuse me. The next, as I say, these are disparate things. This next, so we had Mark Epstein, we had the Buddha. Now we're going to have a, a writing of a, a psychologist that helped me quite a bit. This was written at least 25 years ago. He's a staff psychologist at uh, Mount Olive Lutheran Church here in Minneapolis. And this has to do, the reason I selected this, it kind of fits into putting things in perspective about letting go of ill will. And here's what he presented in this, in this essay. If we struggle with our letting go of our losses, we can consider what is there in this life after all? To be lost. We can lose our parents, our roles, our possessions, our jobs, our careers, our children, our spouses, our friends, our health, our circumstances, our money our youth, our competency, our very lives. Just think of that. Just think of that. He goes on to say, all that is important and valuable to us now, we will someday lose if not while we live, then by the fact of our own death. In the face of this inexorable reality, I ask you now, what is the big deal of holding on 
to the grudges that we have. Isn't it clear that it, that it is healthy for us to renounce the ill will we hold against someone and forgive them? Isn't it healthy for us? And what I found, it goes hand in hand with forgiving myself for not being what I thought I was supposed to be. The third thing on this list, kind of laundry list, is from Ajahn Sumedho. He's trained a monk in the Thai forest tradition and was leads a center in the UK. He's an American. Sumedho was asked about the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering. And the question was, when you say the end of suffering, do you mean both mental and physical suffering? That's a good question, isn't it? How would you answer that? Here's how Samedo answered that. The suffering that ends is a suffering you create, you create out of ignorance. When ignorance is gone and you see with right view, the body still feels pleasure and pain, but you don't suffer from it. It is as it is. When you don't know this truth, then you create suffering. And the ignorance, right view, has to do, kind of relates to this fixed self that we think we are. And there's a, there is a sutta that I like of the Buddha. Actually, I learned it from Patrice. It was uh, about the second arrow. It's a Salatha sutta. And it is uh, the difference between a well-instructed wise person and a run-of-the-mill person being shot by an arrow. And the ordinary run-of-the-mill person suffers from being shot. And then it's just as if he's shot by a second arrow. He, he goes on and on about how he suffers from that and he holds on to that suffering. That's what he's creating for himself. And I have a, um, a website where you can get that if you're, if you're interested in reading it. It's, it's, it's kind of a fun read. And the last thing on this laundry list, I saved the, the best for last. And it's another story of Ajahn Sumedho. 
and he was, as I say, he was a monk in the forest monastery in Thailand. You know, and I don't know what monks do very much, but they, he's in there, and he develops his hatred for a fellow monk. I don't know what they could do to hate each other, but, but and it just grew and grew in him, he said. And it, it wasn't funny. I mean, it was just just disturbing him, and he didn't know what to do. And he knew, you know, he thought, well, I'm a monk. I shouldn't have these thoughts, you know, and that didn't help. That made it worse. And so finally he got the idea one day, and he took a handful of paper and walked out in the forest, and he sat down, and he started writing all the way, all the things he hated about this man, just how terrible he was. And it just, he said, it just started flowing out of me. And I wrote, and I wrote several pieces of paper about all the terrible things about this man. He says, it wasn't rational. It wasn't, I didn't try to make it rational. I didn't try to make it reasonable. I just let the, these bad feelings come out of me. And he said, oh, my goodness. He said, if somebody would have read that, you know, they would have thought I was the most scurrilous man on the planet. I mean, it was just awful. It's how it seemed. And he said, I destroyed it. I didn't let anybody read it. Because it was, but he said it was, you see, he was facing his feelings. He was working with his feelings, and then he was expressing them. And finally, he said, it all ended. I imagine it would be like Lansing and Boyle or something. And he said the next words out of his mouth were, I love you. You know, he was by himself. But after all this poured out, the only thing he could think was, I love you. Well, so much for the so-called talk. I do have a few practice suggestions I'd like to term an assignment, but <laughs> that's not my job. <laughs> you have to save yourselves. But, and, and this is also going to be kind of a cafeteria style. I'm going to throw a few things up on the wall. And you guys <coughs> choose whatever sticks for you. So there's one, two, three, basically three different suggestions. Excuse me. I got choked up by that I love you. <laughs> um, this is also, uh, this book is written by Ajahn Sameo. Kind of become a fan of his, I guess. This is in the chapter Being Kind. And the subheading is Being Patient with Our Aversion. 
of the title of this book is The Mind and the Way and the Way. The way out of suffering, as the Buddha taught, is cessation. Freedom from suffering comes through allowing that which has arisen to cease. It's as simple as that. In order to allow anything to cease, we must not interfere with it, nor try to get rid of it. Wow, that's counterintuitive, isn't it? We must allow it to go away. This means we must be patient with it. So loving kindness is a kind of patience, a willingness to exist with unpleasant things without thinking about how awful they are or getting caught up in the desire to get rid of them immediately. I have learned to be kind to things I don't like in myself. I have a character that tends a character I think he means characteristic I have a character that tends to be very jealous. A great problem in my life was jealousy and indignation. When I first became a monk, I used to have this terrible problem because I hated this condition of jealousy and I'd try desperately to get rid of it. I try to repress it. I tried to pretend happiness for the person I was jealous of. I grit my teeth and say, I am really happy for you, very happy indeed, but I still feel this terrible pain. Through the years I tried to stop it, to rep repress it, to annihilate it, but I found that it was getting worse. It was getting so bad that I couldn't hide it anymore. And it was becoming obvious to everyone. And it was humiliating. Then I'd reflect on it. I said, I'm doing something wrong. You tried everything to get rid of it, but it doesn't go away. Then I realized the problem wasn't really jealousy. The real problem was my aversion to jealousy. The real problem was my aversion to jealousy. That was the real problem. So when I started feeling jealous, I'd say to myself, Oh yes, jealousy again. Come on in. And I deliberately be jealous and I think I'm jealous because I'm afraid that person is better than I am. I'd bring it up into full consciousness. I'd listen to it. I'd really watch it. I'd befriend it. Rather than saying as I had before, Oh, here it comes again. I've got to get rid of it. I'd say, Oh, jealousy, my old pal. And I learned a lot from jealousy. It's like a warning sign.
But to take this attitude toward jealousy, it was necessary to have loving kindness for it, have the loving kindness for the jealousy, a willing to allow it to exist, a willing to let it run its own course and cease without giving it a shove. It was still an unpleasant state. Jealousy is not a state of mind that is pleasant to experience, and neither is anger. But it is endurable, and one can be kind to that unpleasant state of mind. One can fully investigate it with mindfulness. One is aware of it completely and watches it till it ceases. So it goes to cessation because it is not a permanent condition of mind. It arises and passes away if we let it. It's not a personal thing. It's like a reflection that crosses in front of a mirror. You just have to be patient until the reflection goes. suggestion I have from my own something that works for me and, and this is all related to finding kindness and compassion in your own heart my only advice is use your creativity you have what you need there you'll find it trust yourself be creative and one thing that seems to work for me is a practice of gratitude it works quite well. Sometimes, you know, I try to create gratitude through kind of a rote thing, and that doesn't work so well. But I can find a freshness in gratitude, and it's very healing for me, for my heart, to change negative energy into positive energy. And I was in the doctor's office this week, you know, and I didn't want to be there. And they're kind of not really pleasant places to be. And I was wanting to get out of there as quick as I could. And, of course, I was waiting. And then I just thought of gratitude. Well, there's so much to be grateful here for. You know, and I, you know, and I started interacting with the people that work there. They're busy. They had the quotas to meet and everything. But they had time to smile and joke a little bit. And there was, there is a lot to be grateful for in being able to go and get help for an illness. An attitude of gratitude works for me. But find your own. And then the final one is a good one. <laughs> It's from the book Alcoholics Anonymous. There's a story in the back called Freedom from Bondage. And this woman had one resentment she couldn't get rid of. And she got rid of all the others in the state for years. And guess what? It was her mom also. <laughs> but, and then she got the suggestion from somebody. And it's really a Buddhist suggestion. It was... A way to get rid of this resentment 
was to pray for that person, the person you resent. And you prayed, wish them to have everything that you want for yourself. I want peace. Then you wish, may she, may she have peace. I want kindness and respect. May she have kindness and respect. And the kicker is, you have to do this every day for two weeks, according to the instructions that she, this woman got. The safety valve is, you don't have to mean it. <laughs> In time, you will come to mean it. It won't start out that way, most likely. And that's a big stumbling block for me, you know. Well, you mean I've got to be a hypocrite? By God, I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I might be mean and bitter, but I'm not going to be a hypocrite. Well, that's a choice. That's a choice. This direction was just to do it. Do it as best you can. And, and, and not just perfunctory. Just to think of the things you really want for yourself, what's important to you, and then wish that for this person every day for two two weeks. My final thought this little stuff was written by a very wise woman. And a lot of you will pick it up as soon as I begin. And the line goes like this. You don't have to be good. You don't have to be good. Her line goes, you don't have to crawl on your knees through the desert for a hundred miles repenting. My line goes, you don't have to judge and condemn yourself or others. Her line goes, you only It's a big only you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. I'm not sure what that means. I think I know. You only have to be yourself. You only have to love what you truly love. You only. Now that's a long only because we're so conditioned and so averse and so identified with what we think we're supposed to be and we have to let all that out the window and only love what was always there in the beginning. 
Well, I think that's all I got. Well, I think it would be a good time to go back to the small groups you were in and pick up where you left off. And I, I might suggest that if you can, perhaps you can mention to uh, loud to these other people whether you mean it or not. If any of these practices would be something that you would be intending to try to do for the next two weeks, whichever of these various different things, maybe you could pick out something that you think might work for yourself that you could follow. So we'll spend about 15 minutes on that, and then we'll come back for just a few general comments and close. So we'll go back to where Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.